Father, we, we do recognize that there is suffering in this world, there is pain, there is hardship. There are things that we do not understand that happen across this world. And right now we want to reflect on and pray and mourn with and lament with our brothers and sisters in the country of Afghanistan and around the world and in places where they do not have the freedoms and the privileges and the liberties that we do to gather together and worship. We pray for spe- specifically for them as in Afghanistan as their lives have been turned upside down having to go into hiding, having to fear for their lives, fear for their families' lives, being threatened with physical harm. So we pray for their safety. We pray that, God, you would protect them there. If, if able and if it is your desire for their lives, we pray that they would be able to escape that as well. We pray for your kingdom to grow and advance and spread in the country of Afghanistan, that through this there would be opportunity for the gospel to be shared, that, that those Christians there would suffer well and, and do so testifying to the fact that you are a good and a gracious and a kind and a great and a powerful God, that no matter what man can do to them, they don't fear that, they fear you, and it's a proper and a right fear, the fear of a God who loves them and cares for them and graciously embraces them in their suffering and their pain. We lift up that whole entire situation to you that you would be kind and gracious to the people there, that there would not be immense bloodshed, there would not be a, any type of a, a genocide or any type of a desire to kill thousands upon thousands, but you would bring peace to that country and that you do that soon. We thank you for our time in scripture. We thank you for the book of Romans. We thank you that it teaches and trains us how to live. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so as I said, we are in Romans chapter five this evening. Um, I wanna catch us up on where we've been because we've been now through four different chapters and we're at a bit of a transition point within the book. So if you recall, and if you haven't been here, I would encourage you to go back and listen so you can catch up to where we've been. But in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul has laid out for us his overall theme for the book, which is Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, and that the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. Then he gets in in chapter one, and he talks about there is a, a group of people who are guilty, They are guilty because what they've done is actually exchanged the glory of God and began to worship idols. And they've they've turned from what they knew to be right and instead pursued other things. And they valued other things greater than God. It says that they valued the creature more than the creator. So they began to worship other things. And so God says, for your lack of worship, your lack of valuing me, for your sin... You are under wrath, you are condemned, you are guilty. That's what he tells these people. And then he gets into chapter two and he says, for you individuals who you think you're good, you think you do right things, you try to earn yourself, you try to earn your favor with God, actually you're just as guilty as those who have gone off and lived in immorality and sin. Chapter three, he, he expands that and he says, chapter three, verse, I believe it's verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one can stand before God within themselves, with their own works, with their own ways that they've tried to pursue after God and say, I am righteous, I am worthy. That doesn't happen. Because God says you are guilty. But then, chapter three at the end, the last couple paragraphs of that that chapter, Paul says, but the righteousness of God has now been revealed. And it's revealed ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now we have been justified by faith. Those who have moved from under wrath, under sin, are now under grace. They've been declared righteous. That's the idea of justification. And chapter four, as we learned over the last three weeks between Chris and Justin preaching, Paul brings this example of Abraham and he says, justification is by faith alone. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of work you can do to earn your way to this righteous standing. Instead, justification, that declaration of righteousness is only by faith alone. 
And we see that in the example of Abraham. Paul then transitions, and we're going to look at in chapter 5, this transition to this this idea of what are these benefits now of this promise. We've been promised justification. If you have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've been justified, you've been declared righteous. So what does that mean? What value is that to me? What value is that to you as Christians? And that's where Paul transitions in chapter five to talk about these benefits of justification, these benefits of the gospel. Before we get into that, I think it's important for us to just pause briefly and say this. If you do not know Christ, if you have not trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins and you are relying on yourself to earn your way to God, or you you say, I'm not even sure there is a God, Romans 5, 1 through 5 is not for you. It's not a reality in your life. It can be a reality in your life, but it is not a reality in your life. That's not to say tune out and don't listen, but it is to say what we're going to talk about when we talk of peace, when we talk of hope, when we talk of the love of God being poured into our hearts, that is not a present reality for you if you do not know Jesus as your savior, if you have not trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. So, If you have, if you'd say, I am a Christian, I am a believer, I have trusted in Christ. All of the things we're going to walk through are for you. They are for you to embrace, they are for you to hold onto, they are for you to love and appreciate because it's what a great and a beautiful and a loving God has done for us and what he has gifted us in the gospel. So our goal tonight as we get into Romans 5 is not to identify three steps or five tips on how to just have a better life. Our goal tonight is simply this. I want us to walk away more in love with God, encouraged by the gospel, and resting in the benefits of God's promise for us in Christ. And I think we'll see how that actually will shape how we live. Romans 5, 1 through 5, we'll read together. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's a lot of good news in those verses that we'll unpack for, that won't be unpacking today. If I took a survey of the room and I asked everyone individually, do you want to be happy? I think I would probably get the vast majority of people saying, yes, yes, I want to be happy. There's going to always be kind of one to two people in any group that are just like, no, I love misery. I'm just happy being unhappy. But we said, if if you want to be happy, do you want to be happy? I think the vast majority of us would say, yes, I do. What we find though, and I think this is true for our lives, this is absolutely true when we look at the society and the world that we live in, is we are not a happy, joyful people. We are not a people that we could describe and say, yes, we are happy. Just, just look around at what we've endured over the last year in time. Record cases of suicide, depression, anxiety. Record cases of individuals who are taking anti-depression and anti-anxiety medication. There is a, a poll conducted in 2020, and actually it's conducted every year by the University of Chicago. They ask a number of questions, but one of the questions they ask is, would you describe yourself as happy? They've been asking this question for 50 years. Started in 1972, they started asking this question in a survey. 14% of the respondents to the question in 2020 said they were happy. 86% of people they surveyed said, no, they're not happy. That's an incredible number. Obviously, COVID has a huge impact on that, but the, the previous low that they'd ever seen was 29%. So half of where they were at their lowest number for usually. 14%, and if you, you bring that out to the entire country, you're talking about 14% of Americans saying they are happy, and I think that's true. 
people are not happy. And they're, they're searching for happiness in something. You see it through substance abuse and through addictions and they try to, to numb the pain and they numb the suffering that they're in. They try to make themselves happy. It's, it's no surprise then that we see record cases of individuals who are taking different medications to try to handle everything. And that's not to say all those medications are wrong or bad. But it's to say there's a problem. There, there is an issue here that the world cannot address. The world can't handle for us. We look around and search for what the world offers in terms of happiness and we come up with something that ultimately will disappoint. And so we have to ask the question then, what do we do about that? What do we, what do, we do with that? We, we are an unhappy people, lacking joy. What do we do about it? And ultimately, we know as Christians that when we come to passages like Romans 5 and we come to Scripture, we know that what God lays out for us is not a temporary satisfaction, it's not a temporary joy, it's not a temporary happiness, but it's something that is sustaining, something that is helping, and something that will ultimately change us. And so I hope we can walk away, in addition to meeting our goal tonight, also saying this is how we are able to be happy in a very unhappy world. I think when we, we become happy in an unhappy world, even when the circumstances of life are chaotic, it looks different for people. It looks different when people see us and, and they don't know how to respond when in our suffering and in our pain we're actually joyful. And I think that will be an incredible testimony to those who do not know Jesus to say, I can be joyful in the midst of of my suffering. I can be happy in the midst of my pain. Paul's going to lay out for us two ideas, and we'll, we'll take them right from the text. The first one, the idea of joy or happiness, he says at the end of verse 2, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can shorten that simply by saying we rejoice in God. So that means rather than looking around as the world would tell us to do and look around at a bunch of stuff, whether that's relationships, whether that's children, whether that's spouses, whether that's entertainment, whether that's money, whatever it is that we think is going to make us happy, when we rejoice in God, we take our eyes off of what is horizontal around us and we look vertically and say, no, God is the one I'm going to rejoice in. God is the ultimate source of joy and happiness for me. And rejoicing in God can kind of sound cliche. It's this it's this phrase that maybe gets thrown around, but I think when we rest in who God is, it takes on a different flavor for us. I think we do that in two different ways. First, we need to rest in who God is, and then we need to rest in what God has done. And when we think of who God is, I think it's helpful to consider how Scripture, specifically Jesus, talks of God. Jesus' title for God is Father. So, if we are rejoicing in God and who God is, we rejoice in him as our father. And when we hear that terminology, when we hear that thought that we rejoice in God and God is our father, that, that can bring about different reactions from us. Mostly it makes us think of our earthly fathers. It makes us consider what, what they were like. And for some of us, it was a great experience. We had a father who was loving, who was caring, sacrificial, responsible. And if that is your experience with your dad, consider yourself privileged. But it's not the experience for everyone. Others, when you think of your dad, when you think of father, you think of someone who has hurt you, perhaps abused you, has been indifferent, they lacked love. And so when, when you hear this phrase, God is your father, you think, something dark, it's not a helpful imagery. The answer to that though is, is not to throw out the idea of God being father because that is who he is, but it's rather to embrace the reality that the way our earthly fathers treated us is not indicative of who God is. God as our father, as our true father, is not just a copy of what we see around us. Rather, our true father is one that is full of love and grace and kindness. 
And in love and grace and kindness, Ephesians 1 tells us that he is lavishly giving us this grace. He is naturally inclined to pour out his love and his grace towards us because he wants to share that with us. That is what he is as our father. That he wants to share what he has for us as his children. And since we are justified, since we are in Christ, since we are his children, we are now part of his family and he does not change his mind. He does not say one day, I've had enough of you and I'm done and walk away. And it's good news because in Jesus, we get a good father. And he's someone that can be trusted, someone that can be relied upon, someone whose promises we can, we can bank on when we're in the most difficult of times. And sometimes we get this perception of God, and I think it especially comes around in the idea of justification, that God is just this kind of impersonal being, that God is this impersonal being, maybe the idea of like a, a ruler of some kind, someone who oversees everything and he, he declares some righteous, he declares some not righteous. And that's just the relationship that we have with God. An illustration that I read recently that I think is helpful is that sometimes we treat God like a police officer who's pulled us over for speeding. And like God, that officer lets us off, maybe he gives us a warning and he lets us off and he doesn't write us a ticket. What is our relationship with that officer then? One of gratitude. Maybe we're thankful. We're happy we didn't get a ticket. We're happy we didn't get punished. We're happy that the officer let us off the hook, but do we love him? Do we love that police officer? No. We're, we're grateful. And when we go down the road and we continue to speed, we're relieved when he doesn't pull us over in the future. But that's not a relationship. That's not a relationship built on love. And if justification and salvation simply means God letting us off the hook, then all we're left with is gratitude. And we don't actually love him. If that's all we think about God, God is just the person who lets us off when we've done wrong. We've missed the value and the worth of God. The greatest commandment is to love God the Lord your God, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is, all that we are, our entire being, we are to love him. And by viewing God as just this impersonal being who's let us off the hook, we've, we've produced this distorted view of who our father is. And instead, we, we walk through life just seeking to avoid being punished, trying to avoid being punished, but never joyful, never happy, never loving. We walk through life afraid that eventually God's gonna get tired of us rather than being embraced by the loving arms of a good father. And thankfully, God is not how we sometimes treat him, how we sometimes think of him. He is not this impersonal being that wants no relationship with us. Rather, he is a father who loves us and he freely shares his love with us. And so we rejoice in who God is, but we also rejoice in what God does. And the text tells us, it says, we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And let's be real. We have a problem with the idea of peace. There's, no, there's little peace in this world. There's little, there's, there's little peace globally. There's little peace nationally in America. There's little peace personally in our own lives. There's little by way of peace that we can point to. And it's a serious problem. And so our society, and sometimes we get pulled into this as well, we think something changing will bring about peace. New president, there'll be peace. No, nope, we're as divided as ever. We, we see a spouse or kids change, that will bring about peace. No, maybe temporarily. Maybe there's, there's moments of peace, but not genuine, not lasting peace. Maybe, maybe if I change a bit, there'll be more peace in my life. Maybe for a time, but it's not lasting. It won't be there forever. 
Peace is not something that's out there in the world that we go to obtain. What Paul says is that peace comes from God. And so we don't look outward to obtain peace. We look upward to be granted peace. And it's only through Jesus that we are granted peace. And so what's amazing about this is that even in the midst when all of our relationships seem to be falling apart, when there's strife, when there's conflict, when there's pain, when there's things going on that we don't understand, and there's a a lack of peace, if you're a Christian, you can always come back to, you have one relationship, you have one person who is always dependable, who you are always at peace with. Because the idea of peace here is, is not just this inner sense or this feeling of being at peace. The idea of peace is actually we've, we've positionally changed. We've been moved from at war with God to now at peace with God. And so no matter, no matter what we do, no matter how much inner sense of turmoil we have, we always have one that we can come back to and say, I am always at peace with him. Because of Jesus, because of what he did, because of his sacrifice, I can say I am at peace with God. I am no longer under judgment. And you might say, well, well, hold up. You say God's dependable, you say I'm at peace with him, but life doesn't always work out or end up how I think it should. God's not holding up his end of the bargain. I'm having difficulties in my life. Stuff isn't going well. And I think it's important for us to stop there and say, what has God actually promised? What has Jesus promised us? Has he promised us no troubles in life? Has he promised us ease and comfort? No. In fact, the opposite. Jesus says there will be trouble in this life. But John chapter 16, Jesus says this. I have told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our difficulties, Jesus is saying, you'll have them, but I am the one who gives you peace through them as you rest in me. The term used by Paul here in verse one, he says, we have peace through God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The term Lord there is the idea of ruler. So what Paul's saying is that Jesus is the one who rules over all of these things. He controls all of these things. So all of the difficulties and challenges in our lives, they're not a surprise to God. They're not accidents to God. They are very much there for our good and for his glory as we sang about where we were once at war with God, we now surrender and receive peace with God. For any of our history buffs out there, peace with God isn't like a peace treaty. It's not like a ceasefire. It's not as though the, that a treaty was signed like the Treaty of Versailles or the Treaty of Paris where both sides negotiated something involved with it. No, peace with God, the idea that, that Paul is, is mentioning here is that when we come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we surrender to him. We surrender ourselves to the Father. It's not some negotiation where God comes along and says, well, I want this, and you say, well, if you want that, I'm gonna need this. That's not the relationship here. Peace with God means we surrender to him. So the natural question then comes is, what do we need to surrender? Maybe there's sin in our lives that we need to surrender. Maybe there's fears, there's hopes, there's dreams. What do you, what do you need to give over to God and say, God, this is yours now to do with what you will? Not in a, a pious or a self-righteous way to try to pump ourselves up. Not in any type of like let go and let God type of way. Rather, we give up those things because we know when we surrender ourselves to God, it's better than all of those things. That a relationship with God is worth more than whatever else I'm holding on to and I won't give up. It's through Jesus that we get God, our Father, who is our ultimate satisfaction and the one who grants us peace. Paul also says that he gives, he gives us peace, but he mentions there in verse two, through him we've obtained access 
into this grace in which we stand. Access is an interesting topic, especially when you consider the last year, because we haven't had access to lots of things since around March of 2020. It's opened up now a bit more, but there was a period of time where you didn't have access to your favorite restaurants, you didn't have access to your favorite stores. If they did, they were limited. You didn't have access potentially to your family because of different situations. We had limited access to things. Through Jesus though, and it's somewhat of a silly illustration, there is limitless access to grace. There's no, there's no close sign on the store of grace. There's nothing preventing us from coming into and enjoying continually grace. And that's the idea of the word. That, the word access, it's continual ability to enjoy grace. That's the idea there. So not a day goes by where a Christian does not have access to the grace of God. And it's new and it's present every day. Sometimes we want to store up grace and like, I'll reserve it for later. His grace is new every single day. And so the challenges of today are met by the grace of God for today. The challenges of tomorrow will be met by the grace of God tomorrow. It's not like, I mentioned a store a little bit ago, it's not like when you go to the store, and I just did this recently, so it was on fresh in my mind. You think it closes at 10 o'clock and you show up at 9.45, like, all right, I got, I got plenty of time. The cashier's ticked at you because they're ready to like, go home, but you got plenty of time. So you walk over and you, you grab the doors thinking it's just gonna open and what do you get? You get it shakes because it's all locked. So then you do it and, and I'm the example of it. You got your eyes looking in. <laughs> I think I see something moving in there. It's dark, there's nothing going on in the store. You're like, I think I got something. You ignore the sign that says closed at nine that you were 45 minutes late. You just ignore that completely and then you're like, Confused, grab the door again, thinking it's gonna work a second time. Doesn't work. So what do you do? You gotta go back to your car, Google what store is open because you need your popcorn, you need your candy, you're watching a movie tonight. You gotta have those things. That's not, God, God never closes the door. He never locks the door and says, sorry, enough grace for you today. Sorry, I'm, I'm closed right now. You no longer have access to me. And it's faith that says the same God who gave me grace yesterday for my challenges and is presently giving me grace today for my challenges, he will give me grace tomorrow for my challenges. That's faith. That's saying, I don't see how it's all gonna work out, but I trust that the God who's doing this will continue to do it. And it's hard, but that's the God that we have. The God who has opened himself up and said, you have access now to me. And so we can come to him privileged, boldly coming, Hebrews says, to the throne of grace where we'll find indifference? No. We'll find ridicule? No. We will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. It is a beautiful thing that we can go to God in our weakness and not be met with ridicule. We can go to God with our shame and not be crushed and belittled. We can go to God with our pain and not receive harshness. We can go to God with our sin and not be told, go away. Rather, God embraces us as our Father, lovingly cares for us. And you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing because Old Testament Christians, when you read the Old Testament, they didn't have that access. They don't have the access we do. Jews in the Old Testament, they were able to interact with God one day a year and it was through one person. Not, not everybody could go in there. The only people that had access to God was the high priest and as I mentioned, Hebrews 4 says that Jesus is our high priest and he sympathizes with our weaknesses so we can come boldly into the throne of grace. And it's grace that we stand. It's a new position now. We are no longer under wrath but we are under grace and he will be our father forever. Nothing changes that. Why? Because we've moved positions now. We, we've changed teams through Christ. We are now firmly planted in grace and there's nothing that can separate us from that. Romans 8, we're gonna get to it in who knows how many weeks. Not sure yet. The end of Romans 8, there is not death, life, angels, demons, heights, depths. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
the accusations of an enemy, Satan whispering in our ear telling us you're not good enough, none of that can separate us from the love of God. We are firmly planted in the grace of God and so we have relationship with him. Now, that's not a license to go sin. We'll get to that Romans 6. It's not a license to go like, I'm just gonna go live however I want then because I've got grace. No, that's not true. And we'll touch on that in a minute. But when we root ourselves in the reality of grace, it affects how we surrender our lives. It's because in grace, we can then take our future hopes and our future dreams and our future plans. Everything we, we think we want in this world and we hand it over to God and we can do it in faith. And where our faith fails, it's because of grace that we can say, God, help me in my failing faith. When I'm struggling to trust, when troubles come and it, it makes me think that I'm not on a solid foundation, it's God's grace that says, no, you are. And, and he will sustain you. And when we have that faith that says, life is hard, I'm, I'm going through difficulties. I'm, I'm in a valley right now in life. But God is good. That's, that's the grace of God evident in our lives. And when we have those situations and we have those times where we entrust these things to God and we're uncertain and we're fearful and we're anxious, the floodgates of grace will open up. As I mentioned in Ephesians 1, God lavishly pours out his grace on us. And he continues to do it. It comes in many forms too. Grace isn't just this experience we get, although we can have experiences of God's presence in our lives. We see that when we, maybe we're reading scripture or we're, we're praying, we, we experience some something of God in our lives. We experience when we worship together. We experience God's grace when we are told and encouraged, told scripture and gospel and encouraged by people in our lives. We experience the grace of God. We experience the grace of God when we read things like Romans 5 and we hear these truths and, and we realize that God is not angry with us. God does not hate us. Rather, God loves us as a good father should. So we rejoice. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We do not search for hope here. He mentions that we, we rejoice in hope for the glory of God and our hope is not present in this life. It's not in this world. It's not something we can find or do in this world. Rather, it is only in God, specifically his glory. And it's kind of an odd phrase to try to unpack. And I'll use somewhat of a semi-dark illustration. If you can imagine with me someone you love, whether it's a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, child, maybe your family. Your family gets kidnapped. Kidnappers have been in touch and they say, we want X amount of money, you can't afford that, or I'm gonna kill your family. You talk to the authorities and they say, we don't even know if your family's alive right now. We can't get them to put them on the phone. We have no way to verify that your family's alive. This goes on for days and days. Just think of the, the anxiety and the trauma and the stress that's involved in that situation. A couple weeks go by and eventually you get a phone call and the police are there and say, we found your family. We've arrested the kidnappers. Everyone's safe. They're in this place. Consider the, the hope that's there now. The good news that was told to you on that phone call, it changes everything for you. Nothing's the same. There's, there's a real assurance now where you were fearful and anxious and afraid before. Now there's an assurance that the one I love is actually there. I have hope now. I have hope that this is going to be okay. There's an assurance now that, that wasn't there before. And our lives are like this in a lot of ways. We live with uncertainty so much, but in Christ there is hope, there's certainty, there's assurance. We live with a hope that the benefits of God's promises are true. And just like when we heard good news that our family had been found and we have assurance that we can go get them, we hear good news of the gospel and now we have assurance and hope 
that God is fulfilling the promises that he said he would. And what once was a wasted life pursuing false gods and pursuing self and pursuing our, our own pleasures now is a life pursuing God and his glory. We finally live, we can finally live in grace, in the gospel, how we were meant to live. And we can live knowing that our, our purpose and our direction in life is the glory of God. So if you pursue happiness, we've been talking about this idea of happiness, you pursue happiness, you pursue joy, but at the center of that pursuit and foremost in that pursuit is not a pursuit of the glory of God, you will not be happy. You're placing your hope in something that will ultimately disappoint you. You want your marriage to be reconciled and renewed and restored. Pursue the glory of God. You want to be a better parent, pursue the glory of God. You, you want to be a better church member, pursue the glory of God. You say, I don't, I don't feel like I want any of those things. The answer's still the same, pursue the glory of God. If you want joy and happiness in your life, pursue the glory of God because it is the highest and greatest pursuit of our lives. There's nothing greater that we could ask for. There's nothing greater that we could strive for than actually experiencing and seeing the glory of God. And so you say, okay, what does that look like? What does pursuing God's glory actually look like then? A couple of different things. First, seek to live holy. Live in a way that reflects God's character. Do good. Show kindness. Forgive. Run from sexual immorality. Avoid gossip and slander. Don't be quick to judge. Be quick to listen. Repent. Confess sins. Seek to live holy. Second, seek to please God. The idea there has, has different interpretations for different people. What I do not mean when I say seek to please God is seek to make God happier with you. That's not what I mean. Our goal in pleasing God is not to gain some additional favor. God is not this karmic being who when we do good, he then gives us good, and when we do bad, he then gives us bad. That's not God. God doesn't use karma to interact with us. Rather, he seeks, we seek to please God, what, out of a desire to love him. We seek to please God out of a desire to love him and pursue him because we've seen through the gospel that knowing God is better than anything else in this world. Knowing God is, anything, is, is better than any other pursuit we could have. And so we want to please him because ultimately he's worth pleasing. He's a good father who cares for us and says, seek to please me, not because you think I'm gonna dole out more good things to you, but because you love me and I love you. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have a joyful confidence we're able to live as God intends us to live with him as our satisfaction, with the pursuit of his glory as our highest pursuit in life. And then this leads us to Paul's second idea. We see that in verse three. Take it straight from the text as well. Rejoice in our sufferings. It's an assumption on Paul's part that there's going to be suffering. Why? Because this life has distresses. This life has hardships. There's struggles. There's oppression. There's things that go wrong. And Paul, Paul probably knows this more than any of us. Uh, scripture accounts for a lot of the, the physical things that he went through. Shipwrecked multiple times. Beaten. Arrested. He had to be lowered down a city wall in a basket because there were crowds of people who wanted to kill him. All the suffering that he faced. And that was simply because people hated him. That wasn't even his own personal sufferings. That wasn't even his own personal things that he was dealing with. So Paul knew more than us what it was to suffer and yet he says to us, rejoice. Have joy in suffering. It's an interesting phrase because it's so foreign to us. Because really, everyone wants to rejoice after suffering. Everyone wants to rejoice when the suffering's over. I mean, just, just look at the last year with COVID. Look at the commentary around it. Well, 
everyone will be happy when things get back to normal. And I think we can rightly call the, the last year suffering. It's been hard. There's been hardships. But what Paul's saying is not, when it's all over with, then rejoice, then be happy, then have joy. No, what he's saying is rejoice in the suffering. In the middle of the pain, in the middle of the hardship, in the middle of the struggle, Paul and God says to rejoice. How can that be, though? We, we rejoice, how can we rejoice when, when the world's falling apart? And so I think the primary way we look at this is to consider how do we as Christians approach our suffering? How do we as Christians approach suffering in this world? And primarily it's this way. It's to look at our suffering not as pointless. Our suffering isn't meaningless. Our suffering's doing something. It's not a pointless trial just for the sake of making life challenging. Rather, what Paul says, says in verse three, it says suffering produces endurance. Hebrews 12 talks, Hebrews 12 talks about the fact that we run this race that is set before us with endurance. So in our suffering, oftentimes we just want it to end. And rather what Paul's saying is, in your suffering, just endure. Don't be looking at the finish line. Don't be looking for when the suffering ends and when things are over with. Rather endure what you're, what you're going through right now. But the struggle beats us up a lot. The suffering beats us up a lot. And, and so what it does is it causes us to question ourselves and question God. We question ourselves because we think the only reason this is happening is because of something I've done wrong. And so we begin to beat ourselves up about it. Maybe the suffering we're enduring is because we haven't been a good enough Christian. And maybe God doesn't care for us like we thought he did. And not only that, but we start to question ourselves, but we start to question God and say, maybe God actually doesn't love me. Maybe God actually does hate me. He doesn't care for me. But as the suffering continues and as we endure through that suffering, I think we would realize that, oh, God, in fact, does love us. God, in fact, does care for us. And so we, we push through the suffering and the pain and we seek to endure because it's the suffering and the pain is doing something. And ultimately, we'll get to it in that this suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. But I want to stop for a moment and just say, I, I'm encouraged by many of you because many of us are going through difficult things, life-altering things. And yes, there are cracks. Yes, there are times when we fall. Yes, there are times where things hurt. Yes, there are times where, where we don't feel like it's all working out, but I want to encourage you as I am encouraged that I have seen everything you're going through and your faith is whole. Your faith is intact. There have been ups and downs, but your faith is still there. Life's beating you down, but you keep pushing on. And when you get knocked down, not to use an old rock cliche, you're getting back up again. You fall, but you're back at it, and you continue to endure through the pain, and this is something to rejoice in. Be encouraged by that. Even in the midst of your pain and your suffering, be encouraged by the fact that you are enduring through it and your faith is still there. Because endurance ultimately produces character. And so in our suffering, what it does is it presents itself an opportunity to become the best version of ourselves. We've already described what that is. The best, version of, the best version of ourselves is when we're pursuing God and his glory and it's in suffering where God shapes us and changes us. So we become more loving and more compassionate, more patient and more kind. And so everything we're going through, all of the pain and all of the suffering has a purpose and it's growing us. It's changing us. It's an opportunity for us to grow and change, and it's an opportunity for us to trust in and rely on God more. Too often we want to avoid suffering. We do everything we can to stay away from it, to avoid it, 
Because suffering's hard. Suffering hurts. Pain hurts. So we do everything we can to avoid it, and yet we're surprised when we're not growing. We're surprised when we're not changing and becoming more Christ-like, and it's ultimately because it's in the hardest times of life where we see God the greatest, where we see God the most, and we are changed the most. There's an old Puritan prayer called the Valley of Vision. Um, One of the sections I'm gonna put on the screen while I read it, it says, let me learn that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious spirit, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. It's in the hardest times of our lives where we see God, the greatest and the most, and God makes himself fully known to us. In the lowest times of life, God is producing in us what 2 Corinthians 4 says, an eternal weight of glory. I'm gonna brag on my wife for a moment. Um, A few years back, Elizabeth went through one of the hardest times of her life. It's her story, so she can give you the details, but it was very challenging, very difficult for her and for myself, mostly for her because I'm an idiot and I don't make things any better. Um, By God's grace, she endured when life was falling apart. She continued in that battle, and what I've seen come out of that time is a person who has much more love and compassion for other people. Someone who is willing to go out of their comfort zone in order to care for people. And when things are challenging and hard, she pushes through it because she has a love for God and a love for people that wasn't there three years ago. And it's not by accident. I don't believe it's an accident that the the things that broke her down three years ago were there because in doing that, God grew her. God knew what she needed to grow in grace and grow in her faith and grow in her pursuit of glorifying God. And he's the same way with us, with all of us. The things you're going through right now are not an accident. They're there because it's where God wants you to be and it's where God wants you to be because he's growing you in grace and faith and in pursuit of his glory. So don't avoid the troubles. Don't celebrate them like they're, you're some narcissist and some like you just really enjoy all of the pain and all of the things coming at you because you're at the center of it. No, celebrate the fact that God in his grace and his goodness is training you by all of these things. Romans 12 says that he, he is producing in us fruits of righteousness. It's not an accident that we're in the things that we're in. But it's God's desire that through those things we endure and we grow and we live how God designed us to live. Paul brings us back to a topic we already looked at when he says that character produces hope. Hope is exactly what we need when we're in suffering. And he says here that hope does not put us to shame. The idea here is that hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. I think there's two components to that. It doesn't disappoint us in the present. It doesn't disappoint us in the future. And in the middle of our suffering, when our flesh and Satan are trying to convince you all this bad stuff's happening because you're not a Christian, because you've done wrong, because you've done all of these things. Rejoicing in hope says, no, I will not be disappointed because my God, my Father, holds me in his hand that there's nothing that you can do, there's nothing my flesh can do, there's nothing Satan can do that can snatch me out of his hand. There's an old hymn that recently was updated, but the words of the first verse say, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he can hold me fast. You've been justified, and so your hope, you have this joyful confidence that in your hardships, as you endure, God is proving to you the genuineness of your faith. So that in the trials, in the suffering, when everything wants to say, no, you're not part of Christ, the fact that you're enduring is evidence of the fact that you are in Christ. 
And nothing can take you out of that. Not only in the present, but in the future. We've talked about future judgment. Romans 1 through 3 talks about that extensively. It makes clear that God's wrath is coming for the ungodly, and so he will judge those in his wrath. And the punishment for sin, the punishment for his wrath is hell. But when we place our faith in Christ, hope does not disappoint means that we will not be surprised that when judgment comes, he says, you are not under wrath, but I've poured out my love for you in your heart. You will not be put to shame. You will not be disappointed. You are righteous because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what's coming for us come judgment time so that we will not be disappointed when we hope in God. He finishes up this section. He says it's because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit and it propels us forward to seek joy in God and joy in our suffering because that's what it does. When God's love has been poured into our hearts, it says, go seek after God. Go seek his glory. Seek happiness and joy in him. Seek happiness and joy in your sufferings. Why? Because God loves you. That's the, that's the motivation. That's the foundation for us to be able to do those things. By faith we are justified, and so God has gifted us with now meaning and purpose in life, and it centers in and focuses on the joy in God as we pursue his glory. We don't have enough time to talk about the Trinity. It's in there. We'll talk about it another time. Our goal tonight, I said at the beginning, was to leave more in love with God, encouraged by the gospel, and resting in the benefits of God's promise for us. And I, I trust we've reached that goal I've been encouraged by studying this passage. I hope you have and will be as you continue to study. And I trust that as we've reached our goal and in the love and the encouragement of Paul's words in Romans 5, resting in the goodness and the graciousness of God, what it produces in us are lives of joy, lives of happiness, not pursuing other things, but joy and happiness ultimately in pursuing God and his glory.